Let's hear the word of, we, of our God as we find it in Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Psalm 3 is the first psalm in the book of Psalms that has a title with it. It's that that, uh, slightly smaller font above the main text of the psalm, and it's part of the inspired word of God. In fact, in in the Hebrew Bible, that introduction to the psalm makes up the first verse of the psalm. And so if you're ever looking at a Hebrew Bible and uh, able to understand it, you uh, might get confused a little bit by the numbering of the verses. But this this is the first verse of the psalm in the Hebrew Bible. And it stands to reason that if we are to understand this psalm, we need to understand the historical context of this psalm. And the historical context is that David is fleeing from Absalom, his son. And and the historical context of that really starts with David sinning by committing adultery with Bathsheba. We're all familiar to one degree or another with that sad history. In the spring, when the kings would normally go out to war and engage in battle, David was being lazy. He was sleeping throughout the day, and he woke up in the evening, and uh, he, sp- he saw uh, Bathsheba bathing, and he lusted after her and, and had her brought into his, his palace, and he committed adultery with her. As a natural result of that adultery, she became pregnant. And this was a, a serious problem for David, because Bathsheba was married to one of his mighty men. She was married to Uriah. And... David is confronted with two options here. He can either confess his sin and and own up to the fact, I've I've sinned here, I've committed adultery, or he can cover his sin. And and David decides to cover his sin, and he has Uriah murdered on the battlefield. And he quickly marries Bathsheba, and it appears that everything is taken care of. He's, He's gotten away with his sin. But the Lord doesn't let David get away with his sin. God, through the prophet Nathan, confronts David and calls him to repentance. And and David, with the words of Psalm 51, repents of his sin. 
he comes before the Lord, he recognizes that I am a sinner, that against God I have sinned, and my only hope of salvation is that the Lord would wash me whiter than snow. The Lord forgave David for his sin, but God told David there would be consequences for what he's done. Consequences would be that God would raise up adversity against David from his own house. God would take David's wives from before his eyes and give them to his neighbor. And this prophecy and these consequences were fulfilled in the person of Absalom. And the story of Absalom really begins, uh, he was a son of David and he had a beautiful sister named Tamar. Tamar uh, also had a half-brother named Amnon. Now, Amnon loved Tamar, but instead of marrying her or even asking that David would grant her as his wife, Amnon sinfully lusted after Tamar, and he raped her. And after he had done that vile sin, he hated her more than he had ever loved her. Amnon committed an incredibly wicked and vile sin. He horribly disgraced Tamar and sinned against her in wretched ways. And when David heard about what had happened, he got extremely angry. But he didn't really do anything about it. He got angry, but he didn't take any action against Amnon. He, in a sense, dropped the ball. There could be multiple reasons for for why David did that, but he he failed to execute justice in this situation. And so Absalom, Tamar's brother, took things into his own hands. He wanted justice for his sister. He is furious that David would let Amnon get away with what he had done. Now Amnon had sheep he needed to shear, and and when it was time for shearing sheep in, in Israel, there would often be a party at the end of that. And at that party, Amnon got drunk and was unable to defend himself, and Absalom had his servants murder Amnon. And then Absalom uh, flees from David. Because he's worried that David's now going to execute justice against him. So it's, it's, it's the story of sin after sin after sin here. David's now, in essence, lost two of his sons. He's, Amnon's been murdered and Absalom's fled. And David is deeply grieved at this. He mourns that Amnon has been killed, and he mourns that Absalom has now run away. Perhaps part of this mourning is that David's recognizing that these are the consequences of his sin. David's recognizing that this is because of what I've done. After a while, David forgives Absalom and, and invites him back to the city of Jerusalem, And Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, but King David doesn't see him for about two years. And uh, Absalom 
uh, buys his own house in, in Jerusalem, and he eventually gets tired of, of waiting for David to fully reconcile with him. So he goes and burns a field, uh, thinking, well, this will finally attract the attention of David. And, and it, it worked. Uh, David and Absalom got together, and they were reconciled and reunited. At least they were reconciled outwardly. Absalom was still very bitter and angry about what David had done. But he starts living as uh, uh, one of the king's sons. He gets his chariot and he has 50 men run in front of him. But he doesn't just do that. He starts sowing seeds of division in the kingdom. He starts sitting at the gate and talking with all the people who are lined up to meet with King David and present their, their cases and their troubles to King David. And, and Absalom starts sowing these seeds, saying, well, if I was king, this is what I would do. If I, if, if I was in charge, you know, I would actually deal with your problem. And Absalom starts all this political maneuvering. He was a good-looking, a young man. He was shrewd. He, he knew how to talk with people. And he slowly won the people's hearts away from King David. And after some time of doing that, Absalom sets himself up in Hebron as king. That's the very city where David had first reigned as king. Absalom sets himself up as king and calls a whole nation of Israel to rebel against King David and to recognize him as king. I can imagine what David's reaction to all that was. David was terrified and distraught about what happened. The vast majority of Israel was rising up in rebellion against him. They, they hated him. They were in support of his son Absalom. They, they loved this man. And so David's, David and his servants flee from Jerusalem, not knowing if they're going to live another day, knowing that they can be killed by Absalom's men. David left ten of his concubines in Jerusalem to care for his house, and it's with those concubines that Absalom committed adultery in sight of all the people, fulfilling the words that Nathan the prophet spoke what happened to David. Now, that's a long history, I, I know, but I recounted it to, to demonstrate that when David wrote Psalm 3, there's a, a massive amount that has happened there's a lot that's in David's heart as he writes this psalm. His life is in pain and turmoil. Not only from the sins of his past, but also with this occurring rebellion. His whole life has been turned upside down. The kingdom he has labored long to build and to establish was ripped from him in a single day. All the glory and honor he had gotten as a king of Israel was no longer his. He was back on the run as he had been in, on the run during the days of Saul. His enemies and his foes have multiplied exceedingly. David isn't even sure if he's going to live another day. 
But amid all of what David is going through, he takes the time to sit down in the morning and pray to his God. David trusts in the Lord in the midst of the pain and turmoil of his life. And we can be concerned about a lot of things today. We can be worried about our jobs. We can be worried about the health of our loved ones. We can worry about the state of the world, if we are going to be entering World War III, or if there's going to be a big economic collapse. We can be worried about supply chain problems and if we're going to have enough food to feed our children. We can be anxious about the growing immorality of the world and and increasing, increasing pressure of the civil government upon the church, calling it, telling it to conform to its sinful agendas. But in Psalm 3, we are given words to express our concern and our worry to the Lord. David acknowledges in Psalm 3 his troubles and his fears, but he also acknowledges how it is the Lord who is his salvation. He trusts in God. It's because David knows that it is his God who protects him. Because he knows that, that he is able to restfully and peacefully sleep at night. And once he wakes up in the morning, he's able to face the challenges and fears of a new day. Many fears that can hinder our ability to serve the Lord faithfully, but starting our day, as David does in Psalm 3, with prayer, can rightly orientate our thoughts, our affections, and, and our actions to the service of God. And so I want to encourage you this morning from Psalm 3 to start your day with the Lord in prayer. And I want to encourage you to take stock of four things in the morning as you pray to the Lord. The first thing you need to take stock of as you begin your, your day is your enemies. You need to take stock of your enemies. That might seem a bit odd for us to hear. I like to complain about our enemies or people we don't like. We don't often think about speaking to the Lord about them. We would much rather, you know, just keep those thoughts to ourselves or or complain about them to one of our, our good friends. But David begins this psalm by saying, Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. I've already spoken of the national rebellion against David, but I want to focus on what these rebels were saying about David. They're saying there is no help for him in God. Notice that this isn't the statement of an atheist. You might imagine an atheist saying, well, there's no help for you in God because God doesn't even exist. Why? Why hope in God? But that's not what is happening here in Psalm 3. We must remember that David's enemies at this time were, were part of the visible church. They were the people of Israel and his very own son, 
His own son who he had taught at a young age to fear and serve the Lord. The people who are saying this of David believed in the Lord and worshipped him. So what is transpiring here in our text is that Israel is looking at David and saying, Good, God is finally judging you for what you've done. God is finally giving you what you have deserved to happen for your sins. Israel, by this time, had had likely heard rumors and reports of the adultery that David had committed with Bathsheba. They had likely heard reports of how David had had Uriah murdered. They had likely heard rumors of David's failure to execute justice when Amnon raped Tamar. They're saying that David's sins have finally caught up with him. They're saying God's judging you. And he's judging you rightly for what's happened. Here, here is David hearing these words. There's no help for you in God. And David, like many of us, can be troubled with the sins of our past, with the sins of our youth. Perhaps after we've committed that sin, We've recognized with David that we've committed an egregious sin and we confess that sin to God. Remember that David spent nights soaking his bed with tears, confessing his sin to God, saying, against you, O Lord, you only have I sinned. David had heard the words that God had forgiven him his sin. But now David's sins are being thrown back into his face. And Israel is saying, there is no help for you in God. You're hopeless. Your your condition is hopeless. And that's incredibly cruel and heartless counsel. for The man who recognizes that he has sins. There's many today who say similar things. Perhaps you know the pain of living with the consequences of your sin. Perhaps you know the pain of continually having that sin brought up and people saying, well, you're, you're just getting what you deserve. Perhaps you've even had people tell you that your sin is too great. That your sin is too severe, too weighty for God to forgive it. And perhaps that's even what you tell yourself. How can God possibly forgive me for what I've done? No mercy is shown, no gospel is preached. Only cruel and hurtful words are said by these enemies. But we must take such enemies to the Lord in prayer. We must remember that there is salvation in the Lord. We must, as David does in Psalm 35, say to our souls, God is our salvation. 
because David had cruel words spoken to him. But David was not innocent. There, there's a, a measure of truth with that, that judgment. David was a sinner. But there's one who has had words unjustly hurled against him. And that man was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was innocent of every sin. No blame could be assigned to him. That became exceedingly apparent when he was judged. No one could find anything to judge him with. Nothing against him could stick. Even Pontius Pilate tried to, to convince the Jews, this man's innocent. No, it's, it's ludicrous that you are trying to kill him. And Christ was told, like David was in this psalm, as he was being crucified, there is no help for him in God. They said, you know, if you truly are Jesus Christ, if you truly are the Messiah, if God is truly for you, well then, make yourself come down from that cross. But from all that we see, God is not for you. Because we know that cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. The Christ endured the injustice of that suffering. Christ died as an innocent man, the penalty of sinners, so that he could save us. He was mocked and reviled so that we can know the great relief and comfort that comes in taking our enemies to the Lord in prayer. There's often nothing that we can do about such people. And rather than taking matters into our own hands, we should place that matter in the hands of the Lord who sent His Son to die for our sins. We should take our enemies to the Lord in prayer, knowing that we have a Savior who can sympathize with those cruel taunts of wicked foes. So let's take stock of our enemies in prayer in the morning. And as you take stock of your enemies, take stock also of your God. That's the second thing we must take stock of. The second thing that David takes stock of. This is incredibly important for us to remember because we often think much more about our anxieties, our worries, our fears, than we do of the character and goodness of God. If our thoughts are on everything that is problematic, then it will be no wonder that we are crippled and paralyzed by fear and worry and even depression. But if instead we focus on the character of God we will be given the right perspective of our enemies, no matter what those enemies may be. Thus David, after he speaks of his distress in verses uh, 1 and 2, says in verses 3 and 4, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. David, in his distress, remembered his covenantly faithful God. 
Notice that he uses the covenant name of God in this psalm. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah. David is remembering that this is the God of his forefathers. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who, who, who spoke to David when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. This is the God who told David, no, you don't build a temple for me. You don't build a house for me. Instead, I will build a house for you. And there will not cease to reign a man in that house, on that throne. There will, that throne will be established forever. This is the God who had told David in times past, your sins are forgiven you. You are cleansed from your sins. In other words, David is remembering that his God is a God who is faithful to his word. No matter the circumstances of life, no matter what may happen, God is faithful to his word. God is not a man that he should lie. Amid trials and afflictions, we are quick to forget that God is faithful to his word. We like to think that God's just like us. You know, one moment he'll be loving and gracious. The next moment he'll be angry and, and condemning towards us. We think that God changes just like us. But God does not change. He does not change from his word. If he has promised something, he will surely perform it. We can so quickly think that God's promises are for other people. We must correct that by taking stock of our God and actively reminding ourselves of the character and promises of God. David also does that by proclaiming that the Lord is a shield for him. We all know what the purpose of a shield is. It's, it's uh, an object that is used to protect us from the blows of an enemy. In a sense, it's, it's a portable wall that we can carry with us to always protect us from the enemy. For the one who trusts in the Lord, the Lord is that portable wall. He protects us from the attacks of the evil one, no matter what situation we might be in. We don't need to, to be on the holy hill of Zion for God to protect us. We don't need to be in the church for God to protect us. We don't even need to be with our pastor or in elders for God to protect us. David says that he cried to the Lord with his voice, and the Lord heard him from his holy hill in Zion. The Lord is a shield for us wherever we may go. And remember this the next time you are afraid. Remember that the Lord is a shield for you. Now, one of the most beautiful lines in this psalm, I believe, is when David says that the Lord is my glory, the one who lifts up my head. That's an amazing statement for David to say. 
Because David has just lost everything. Prior to this, he, he was known as a great king. He was known as a great warrior. He had defeated the surrounding nations. The people had said of, of, of Saul, Saul has slain his thousands. But they had said of David, David has slain his tens of thousands. David had all the glory and honor that had gone with being king. But he had just lost all that. Yet David does not bemoan that. He does not cry in self-pity. He does not even say that he has lost all his glory. Instead, he says, I still have glory because the Lord is my glory. In other words, he's saying, I can lose absolutely everything, but the Lord will still be my glory. The Lord is the one who lifts up my head. I don't need anything else in this world. Because I have the Lord. I don't need honor. I don't need wealth. I don't need food. I have the Lord. And it's the Lord who lifts up my head. This is really the Old Testament equivalent of what Paul says in the book of Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the Old Testament equivalent of saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Lord in his providence, and the many hard providences he had brought upon David, brought David to the point in his life where David could be content with no matter what happened. And he could be content because the Lord was his glory. Is this true of you? Is the Lord your glory? Do you have a high enough view of God that you could be placed in the most abject of circumstances and still say with David, the Lord is my glory? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can find that difficult to say. We find that difficult to say in times of adversity. We put so much stock in friendships, material belongings, and vacations, and our relationships with others that often our, our relationship with the Lord takes a back seat. But the Lord teaches us through the school of adversity, through the school of affliction. He teaches us the Lord is to be our glory. That we would find comfort and solace alone in that fact. So, if you want relief from the burden of anxiety and fear, you must grow in seeing how the Lord is your glory. How the Lord is, is your all in all. It often starts with beginning your day with the Lord in prayer. Reminding yourself that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. How true that is for us as believers. The Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the third day in the morning. Every morning we can be reminded of the fact that we have a Savior 
who has conquered that greatest of enemies. He has conquered death itself. Every morning is a reminder to us all the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. As we think about the Lord's mercies in the morning, it should prompt us to take stock of our night. That's the third thing we need to take stock of in the morning. We need to take stock of, of, of our nights. As you take stock of your night, you will remember how the Lord has been gracious and merciful to you during the night. David says in verses 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I awake for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Here David has, has a robust theology of sleep. Sleep can be something so ordinary to us that we don't really even think about it. But there are numerous important and comforting truths that, that sleep reminds us of. Now, we all know that sleep is something that's needful for every single human being. Some of us need it more and some of us need it less. This morning in Sunday school, we heard of uh, Warston who, who slept for three hours. I don't think uh, many of us could, I know I certainly couldn't survive with just three hours of sleep. But we all need sleep. We go we can barely go 24 hours without getting some sort of rest. And this is a reminder to us that we are all dependent creatures. Now, if we can't even go a day without sleeping, we are dependent upon sleep to strengthen our bodies, to uh, uh, re-nourish us and, and to give us that, that energy. Now, sometimes we can act as though, you know, we don't need a rest, that we're independent, that we say, you know, the strong don't need sleep. But our sleep should be a reminder to us that we're not independent, that we're not all-powerful, that there's many things that, you know, we are in need of. And we need desperately. And that should cause us to, to look to God who, who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Psalm 121 says, He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. We need sleep. We need to close our eyes sometimes. But the Lord is always our keeper. He never needs to sleep. He never needs to rest. And so... Our sleep should remind us to, to go to God in time of need. To recognize that He's all-powerful. That He is the one who sustains and guards us. And as we go to sleep at night, we as believers should also, also be yielding our care and protection to the Lord. We can't protect ourselves when we're, at, we're sleeping at night. Instead, as we, we close our eyes and crawl under the covers, we are depending upon God to protect us. Many things could happen in our sleep. People could break into our homes. People could cause us harm. But in going to sleep, we must be yielding that 
care and protection we so desperately need to the Lord. David writes, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. David could have had assassins from, from Absalom come in the middle of the night and, and kill him. After all, that's, that's almost what he had happened, had happened to Amnon. But David trusted in the Lord because he knew the Lord was his keeper. It was the Lord who sustained him. Because of this, David was able to rest peacefully at night. Isn't this true of our Lord Jesus Christ as well? Our sleep is, in a sense, a type of death. We go and close our eyes at night, and, and it's a type of death. And when Christ hung on the cross, some of his final words were, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ yielded his care and protection to God the Father. Because of the Lord's care and provision for his Son, Lord Jesus Christ was raised again on the third day. Taking stock of our nights, taking stock of, of the theology of sleep, will give us comfort. They'll help us think rightly about our God and the events of this life. It will give us godly courage, knowing that God is our Lord and Keeper. And finally, the fourth thing we must take stock of is we must take stock of our salvation. Let's take stock of our salvation. David says in verses 7 and 8, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. As David trusts in the Lord, he recognizes that there are still many dangers to face. He's not naive about the circumstances and events of life. He doesn't just, you know, lay back and and not do anything. No, he, he recognizes that There's very real danger, and he needs to pray to God to protect and save him. People seeking to kill him. David doesn't take matters into his own hands, but he wholeheartedly trusts in the Lord, saying, Save me, O God. And something really neat happens in these last few verses of our text. You recall that at the start of this psalm, David's enemies were saying, there is no help for David in God. There's no help for him in God. But David, after praying to God, has a response to that statement. And David's response to that statement is, salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, these enemies have no right to say, who God will help and who God will not help. That's not their place. Salvation belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. God has told David that he is saved. That he is forgiven of his sins. And isn't that a beautiful thing for us to think about? Beloved, if if you fear what men may say to you about your salvation, know 
that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is an infinitely, infinitely gracious and merciful God. He showers His people with mercy and forgiveness no matter what they have done and no matter what they may be going through in this life. Salvation belongs to the Lord and that includes the blessing of the Lord. David ends the song by saying, the Lord's blessing is upon His people. Here we, we see an uh, interesting connection between the two previous psalms. We all know that you know, Psalm 1 starts with that statement, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That blessed man is, is referring to the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ did not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The Lord Jesus Christ meditated on God's word perfectly day and night. And the, the Lord Jesus Christ was that, that tree planted by waters, bearing fruit for his people to partake. And then Psalm 2 ends with that statement, Blessed are those who put their trust in him. In other words, blessed are those who put their trust in this messianic king, provides salvation for his people. And then Psalm 3 ends with the very practical blessings that God gives to his people. The very practical blessings of a good night of sleep of fears and anxieties taken away, and that immensely beautiful spiritual blessing of knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord, of knowing that God is our Savior for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in conclusion, I encourage you, every day this week, Start your day meditating upon the truths of Psalm 3. Taking stock of those four things we talked about. Taking stock of your enemies. Taking stock of your God. Taking stock of your night. And taking stock of your salvation. Starting our day with God's word is an immense help in dealing with the, the difficult circumstances of life. You can even start your day with just singing these words in Psalm 3, of meditating on their truths, of applying them to yourself. As we do that, the Lord promises, as he said in Philippians 4, the Lord promises to, to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's... Engage in that spiritual discipline of morning prayers, knowing that God is a merciful and a gracious God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, what a glorious truth it is that you are our salvation. That salvation belongs to you. It belongs to you because of the Lord Jesus Christ that innocent man who was so unjustly condemned. Lord, we pray that we would ever 
in the midst of all the, the difficult circumstances of life, in the midst of the fears and worries and anxieties that might paralyze us in this life, that we would meditate on the truths of your word, that we would meditate on Psalm 3. Lord, we pray that you would be our God, that you would protect and keep us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Response to the preaching of the word, let's stand and sing Psalm 3, the B selection. Psalm 3, the B selection. Let's sing with understanding. <laughs>